Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Billboard.com Pop Shop Podcast. My name is Keith Caulfield, and I am the co-director of Charts at Billboard. Joining me, as always, is Billboard.com Deputy Editor Digital, Katie Atkinson. It was 50 years ago today-ish that Sgt. Pepper taught the band to play. And we're talking all about the classic Beatles album on today's show. Because the Billboard Pop Shop Podcast is your one-stop shop for all things pop on Billboard's weekly charts. In addition, you can always count on a lively discussion about the latest pop news, fun chart stats and stories, new music, and guest interviews with music stars and folks from the world of pop. Today on the show, we've got Coming Around Again with Billboard.com Senior Associate Editor Andrew Unterberger. This week, Andrew will be talking all about the songs of this and every other summer, the <laughs> Beatles' Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. According to Andrew. Yes. <laughs> turning 50 on June 1 with Deputy Editor Digital Joe Lynch. They'll discuss their top 10 moments from Sgt. Pepper and talking about the place of the album holds within Beatles lore and rock history. So stay tuned for that in just a few moments. But first, before we get started, if you enjoy the podcast, subscribe to the show on iTunes so you won't miss an episode, and give us a rating or review while you're at it. If you have any questions for us, feel free to tweet us at Keith underscore Caulfield or at KT Atkinson. And if you want to explore more podcasts from Billboard, visit iTunes.com slash Billboard Podcasts. Well, before we join Andrew, let's talk a little bit more about the Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band album, which originally spent 15 weeks at number one on the Billboard 200 chart back in 1967, the longest run at number one for any Beatles album. Uh, The album debuted at number eight on the June 24th, 1967 dated chart, and then jumped number one a week later, and then held on to the top slot until October. By the way, it was normal for albums not to debut at number one. Uh, We didn't have our first number one debut on the Billboard 200 until the 1970s, and we only had six albums debut at number one before we started using Nielsen Music's uh, point-of-sale data in 1991. So debuting at number eight was still a really big deal. Yeah. Um, Amazingly... No singles were released from Sgt. Pepper's. So familiar album tracks like the title track, With a Little Help from My Friends, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, A Day in the Life, and When I'm 64 were never available to purchase as standalone singles. So those songs never charted on the Hot 100. Actually, until 1978, when belatedly, Sgt. Pepper's and With a Little Help from My Friends was released as a double A-sided single. So finally, like... A, basically a decade later hmm. Sgt. Pepper's wanders onto the chart and it didn't even go that high and I, I was reading that I have no idea how truthful this is but I was reading that basically it was because the Beatles were out of contract with EMI and they could then release singles from the band without them giving their blessing wow. which is kind of weird so I don't know how true that is feel free to tweet me and tell me I'm wrong well now that you know all about the chart stats let's join Andrew for Coming Around Again 20 years ago today Hello and welcome to Coming Around Again, Billboard's anniversary theme podcast celebrating milestone anniversaries in the music world. Uh, and today we're going to be celebrating one of the biggest. Uh, we got uh, Joe Lynch, a deputy editor at Yay. Billboard, uh, first uh, multi-time guest on Coming Around Again. Congrat- oh, really? Congratulations, That's Joe. That's quite an honor. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, I'm excited about this one. Yeah, so the, this one is uh, Sgt. Pepper's Only Hearts Club Band, the Beatles' masterpiece album, turned 50 
uh, last Friday, the 26th, and uh, it's celebrating its U.S. release anniversary this Friday, June 2nd. Uh, so, you know, this is obviously a, an anniversary that's been talked a lot, of, talked about a lot in various places, and you can, no shortage of opinions uh, to be found about it on the web the last week or so. Uh, so, we're, we're not going to go too big picture uh, with our discussion today. Uh, we're, we're mostly going to concentrate on kind of the littler things where we each uh, prepared a list of our favorite moments on the album, kind of you know, lyrics and little. You know, musical motifs and stuff like that, that 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 really kind of stuck with us. But before we get into that, we'll we'll, we'll, we'll zoom out a little bit. And uh, let me just start by asking you, Joe, is this your favorite Beatles album? Um, it is, and the reason is pretty simple. I, I guess it comes down to this was the first. So my my parents are both big big Beatles fans. So mm-hmm. I grew up almost. Ex- I mean, in terms of like what they listened to, it was primarily. Beatles, solo Beatles, and then tangential things that I would consider in the Beatles orbit, like a like a Tom Billy Petty Preston albums. <laughs> maybe not Billy Preston, but like Tom Petty, who was you know traveling Wilbur, okay, sure. was yeah. in constant rotation at the Lynch House. Mm-hmm. Um, Tom Petty was on that, so you know Tom Petty was also a favorite. Um, so I grew up listening to a lot of this, and for whatever reason, I guess very organically, as you know, maybe an eight or nine year old, that this was the first CD. Uh, that like when they like that I listened to on my own like when they okay. were out of the house at one point like I went went to the extra effort to like go into the CD or you know wherever they kept the CDs put it in in the house alone like read through the lyrics look at the photos there was something I don't I you know I was young too young to know why but there was something about that in particular that made me feel like I had to like experience it and dig deeper so just for that you know like that's a, a pretty I can you know kind of a personal important moment um, it, it just has always stuck with me. And I think, you know, I see the criticisms of it. It's a little goofy. It's a little overblown. But um, if you look at it historically, um, there had just been nothing like that before uh-huh. Sgt. Pepper's. So any of the excess that you can kind of, like, you know, use to criticize it, like, at the end of the day, like, you know, this was the first of its kind. But for whatever other reason, it just really resonated with me as a child. Fixing a Hole in particular, I thought, really? seemed like Fixing a really a cool... Right, just going, like going, going straight thing. for the deep cuts on that. Yeah, one, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, and uh, that, that's that's all. You know, basically lines up with my experience too. I, I wouldn't call it my favorite Beatles album. I would say it's 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 in the discussions, probably you know, third for me behind the White Album, Abbey Road. Uh, but you know, it, it, once you're talking about favorite Beatles albums, it's kind of a strata unto itself. And, right. And that you know, I think it's interesting talking to people about what their favorite Beatles album is because I think it says a lot about what they kind of value in an album in the first place. Was what their what their favorite Beatles album is. Uh, and and Sgt. Pepper, yeah, like it's it's kind of the first album. And certainly, you know, this this occurred to me listening to it for the first time as, as like a like a concentrated music listener outside of my parents because I, I you know, grew up with it, with my parents being huge Beatles fans too. But like, it's the first album that's kind of its own universe, and uh, that. Like you know, the, the artwork is very important. The packaging mm-hmm. is very important. Uh, the, the, the 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 conceptual nature of it is very important. Even though you know they don't they don't necessarily carry like a, right. a narrative thread throughout the whole album, it feels like you're listening to something that was very carefully constructed and to be one package. And obviously, you know, there, there are no singles from the album for right. that reason, or largely for that reason. Uh, and I remember the first time listening to it uh, on a bus trip to like a, a school field, like a school field trip to an amusement park. And uh, like listening to it on headphones, like, like very carefully, and just like noticing all all the kind of little detail to it. That uh, just like like you know listening to a song like "Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds" and just being able to hear 
John Lennon like breathing in between every syllable, mm-hmm. and, and like the, the the unbelievable clarity of it, like really definitely shaped my view of, of like what you know recorded music was capable of. And, and this yeah. was, this was so many decades later already, but it's it's still kind of held up in its innovations. And and like just reading about the album in the last week or so, it's amazing to me that kind of like the like the things that this album casually invented, like. John Lennon like you use some nonsense phrase to describe a guitar effect and he used the word flange for it or flange I can't remember something how it's pronounced. like that yeah and, and like that became like a, an accepted part of the musical lexicon uh and I, I, something like very obvious about this album that never even occurred to me was that this was the first album to be mixed without uh any breaks in between the tracks mm-hmm. uh and that's something that I value a lot in albums that the, where the songs kind of flow from one part to another and we'll, I'll talk about that a little bit in some of my favorite moments on the album yeah, just just stuff like that that showed how the Beatles were kind of operating at a, at a different level from just about everybody else, uh, I guess except for maybe the Beach Boys, who they were, they were yeah. clearly inspired by at the time. Uh, but as you kind of referenced already, like it, it does seem to me like over you know when this album came out, it was, it was hailed as a masterpiece, topped the charts for like fifteen weeks. Mm-hmm. It was, I think, pretty clearly their 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 high watermark critically, right, for at least a couple decades. But then you've seen in the last 20 years or so that the, the, the tides kind of started to turn against Sgt. Pepper in a certain way and to, to the point where I would say that now it's probably Revolver that's considered their 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 consensus best album and maybe even yeah. a couple others in between them. Now, have you noticed that? And like, well, what would you attribute that to? I feel, I feel the same way, and I, I attribute it solely to um, just Sgt. Pepper's was the kind of – it was almost like the obvious answer for so long. Like, what's mm-hmm. the best Beatles album, Sgt. Pepper's? They're like – naturally just the way like the the human mind works especially music critics who have opinions and like to be contrarian i think part of it's just a natural backlash that people in order just like if you're going to make a new greatest rock albums of all time list like Mm -hmm. you don't want to say the same thing 10 other people have said so you're going to say something different then you start like racking your brain even kind of convincing yourself maybe for whatever reason that revolver is a better one i'm not trying to say revolver <laughs> but there isn't an argument You're fooling there. yourselves revolver fans but i do think there's an element um where this is just like the natural tide of things like mm-hmm. you know and if i feel like if revolver becomes the op- too obvious go-to answer then people are gonna, gonna go back to rubber soul they're gonna either go back to rubber soul or go back to the white album or something i think it's just natural for people um to want to like bring something new and argue something new. And I think kind of that's what it comes down to. Um, I think also kind of what, you know, I, I touched on a little bit earlier. Some some of this is a very kind of like, even you know, psychedelic music in general has a like theatrical quality. Um, and it's just kind of, in hindsight, it seems kind of goofy, especially compared sure. to like how rock ended up, especially uh, in the 90s. Like there was a real focus on like, rock rocking hard and being authentic (laughs) and i think that you know not to just like casually make blanket statements but as rock is like pretty clearly like it's no longer the relevant cultural force Mm -hmm. you know um i think rock's quote-unquote dying kind of actually helps sergeant pepper in the historical big picture because now that there's not this focus on things being so um you know like heavy and hard and quote-unquote real we can, you know, we can get past that and kind of accept that, you know, this is a, a, a silly, somewhat self-conscious album, and that's okay. Like, there's nothing wrong with music that is aware of itself and maybe a little too excessive or something like that. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I guess that, that's what my take. I think, that, you know, it's kind of the bad rap that it's gotten. Um, I feel like future generations who aren't as hung up on 
rock as this, you know, as the ultimate form of music are going to listen to Sgt. Pepper's and not see it uh, as so dated, and they're just going to see it as, like, a combination of various musical forms. Right, and, and yeah, and certainly as, you know, production becomes more and more of an emphasis in music, and this was obviously the, the gold standard for a very long time, and in many ways still mm-hmm. is, so you, you would think that that would help it kind of come back into vogue a little bit. The, the, the things that I wonder about with Sgt. Pepper are, one, that, like, I think that its conceptual nature does kind of hurt it because it makes its songs themselves seem a little bit less, like, yeah, less weighty. Like, sure. You know, it's, it's a silly album, but it's also just, you know, it, because they're kind of you know, playing characters and, and not, you know, it, it, there's no songs on here, like, Here, There, and Everywhere or uh, yeah. In My Life or songs that are, like, just, just kind of very timeless and, 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 and heartfelt. And, you know, there, there's some of that, but certainly that's not the emphasis on this album. The emphasis on this album is kind of playing characters and, right. and there's little very vignettes few and stuff like romantic that. Romantic songs, which is weird yeah. for the Beatles because, I mean, that's from the Mop Top days, even through, like, White Album. Like, they really did a lot of, like, love songs. That's true. And this album is pretty much just bereft of them. Yeah, and, and the, the other thing, uh, which just occurred to me actually pretty recently, because we had an article uh, written by R. Gary Graff, who uh, mm-hmm. uh, kind of did a sort of mini-poll of 60s rock peers uh, and talked to Carlos Santana, Joan Baez, and Todd Rundgren yes. uh, about their opinions on Sgt. Pepper. Uh, Carlos Santana loved it, Joan Baez, and Todd Rundgren did not. Mm-hmm. But what was interesting to me about all three of their answers is that they were all framed around drugs. Yeah. Uh, and, you know... Carlos Santana likes it because, oh, he had, like, this this horrible LSD trip and uh, Within You, Without You kind of bailed him out of it. Uh, and Todd Rundgren and, and Joan Baez say, well, you know, it wasn't really my scene. I hear that, like, you, you, you know, it was great on acid, but, like, I didn't yeah. really do that. So it's not – so I, I the fact that all three of them, like, immediately went to drugs to kind of, like, put the album in context makes me wonder if, like – to, to non-Beatles fans or casual Beatles fans is just, like, the drug album. And, like, if you, you know, they associate it with, you know, stoner guy from freshman year of college. And, like, they they just think that it's kind of like, oh, it's about the music, man. Like, you can see it. It's like it's got all these colors. <laughs> and, and like, like maybe that's why the album's kind of faded a little bit in, in retrospect is that people sort of, I would say erroneously, assume that you kind of have to have this drug connection to it to really appreciate it in its full light. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if that checks out to you or not, but it's an interesting theory to me, at least. I can see that, and I, th- I think kind of I think there's truth to that, and but I think it's becoming less true as time goes on, uh, mm-hmm. and we just kind of move away from it. And you know, I mean, 50 years is a long is a long time ago yeah, now. Time. I mean, when I listened to this for the first time, it was kind of with this sense of like I could talk to my parents who remembered when it came out. I mean, they were would have been too young to be like dropping acid and listening to this album <laughs> but they were aware of the older the not super older but slightly older generation who did that um you know if someone listens to it now they're not going to kind of come to this album with similar hang-ups they're not going to be able to i guess save maybe grandparents they're not going to talk to people who are like yeah i remember everyone used to like get high and listen to you i think it's going to stand more on its own merits um and i think kind of with what you were saying earlier i think those merits pretty much come down to like studio it's like it's Mm -hmm. such a studio album the studio is like the most important thing about it's just the sound you know to use the cliche like the notes that they don't play are as important (laughs) as the ones they do um you know it's it's really the first one where like more than the rock guitar like the studio is the important instrument Mm -hmm. and i think that's what more so than like drugs that people (laughs) associate with it studio more important than drugs okay uh, is there an album that you see uh, like from the last 20 years or so or you know, from whatever you consider our generation to kind of be the equivalent to Sgt. Pepper? 
I mean, I don't. I also just see as I just see like the album is is such a. I just when I think of like the whole idea of like what is the greatest album, like that seems like such a '60s '70s conversation mm. to me. And I, I feel like, especially in the last ten years, like it's just not something that like people focus on as much. Like the album as as like the golden standard of how you listen to music okay. is kind of no longer that. Um, I mean, I know this isn't. 20 years but I mean I think the last thing in the rock world was Nevermind um, I think you could maybe make an argument that like my beautiful dark twisted fantasy is similar to kind of what you were mm-hmm. saying it, it like creates this world like between the artwork and the the listening and the studio being used as an instrument is similar but even so like I just this is such a like of its era even just the idea of like the album being yeah. i don't know at least in my reckoning no that, i mean that's totally fair uh that when i was thinking about it i also thought about the the kanye album as being one of the examples that would work for that uh another one that i thought of uh by a band that wasn't on the same commercial level as as the beatles but was sort of on the same critical level at least you know, relative to their peers and that would that would be radiohead and i think you could, you could say either okay computer or kid a i think okay computer sounds more like sergeant pepper but kid a fits more into the kind of the career arc Mm-hmm. Uh, as as their Sgt. Pepper, and what's interesting to me over like like some of the bands that I've loved in my lifetime is seeing how their careers almost like unintentionally end up kind of mirroring the Beatles uh, album arc, where like you can kind of see them they trace their way through their Rubber Soul, their Revolver, and mm-hmm. their Sgt. Pepper slash Magical Mystery Tour, and, and yeah. right onto the White Album. Uh, just uh, it was one of the ways in which the, the Beatles were kind of more subtly influential is that they, they kind of defined the sort of cliched natural evolution of a rock band in that okay you start off with your 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 early commercial hits and then you Mm -hmm. you you get weird and then you just do everything and then then you have these kind of very discreet moments where you uh you know you kind of try one thing at a time and and, until you've basically tried everything and then you call it quits and then it's it's interesting to see that get played out with bands like radiohead and i've traced it before and it really Mm -hmm. kind of it kind of fits up in in like an eerie way almost yeah. Uh, so yeah, I think that that can conclude our, our big picture talk on Sgt. Pepper. But before we get into the more minute stuff, I know you wanted to talk a little bit about uh, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, the movie, which uh, oh, I, I would love <laughs> came, to came out a decade later and is maybe not quite as fondly remembered as uh, the album that spawned it. But. Yeah, I mean it's it's crazy. This is just another one of the. I mean, I, I think if you're talking about like drugs having a horrible influence <laughs> um this is really yeah, the example John Baez would not be a fan of uh, Sergeant Pepper the movie. I doubt she enjoyed this movie yeah. um I think it, it's just one of those things it's such a historical curiosity that like it's so bad most people don't even know it exists really it's like yeah. so um kind of spearheaded by the Bee Gees uh there was a, a movie version of Sergeant Pepper's the film is called Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band it stars the Bee Gees has Peter Frampton in it um Steve Martin's film debut is in it. He sings Maxwell Silverhammer. Does he sing? Well, not really, but he does anyways. Um, I forget who. There's some other like kind of of the time luminaries in it. Aerosmith's in there. Yes, Aerosmith is in it. Yes. Um, But they like perform songs from the album. There's like a vague plot. Um, (laughs) It's just one of those like here's money. We we have a creative idea and we're going to flesh it out on screen mm-hmm. and hope it all fits together and guess what it 100 percent doesn't like if you've if you've seen the Who's Tommy and been like oh that's kind of a mess like this is like ten times worse it's like not even fun to watch it's just it's just an absolute train wreck it seems like whenever Hollywood's ever tried to like make a movie out of an album that doesn't really totally have a plot to begin with uh, there was I mean it's hard enough to make one out of one that actually does have a plot like Tommy but uh, right. 
yeah, Sergeant Pepper, you get you know a couple character names, and you kind of have to extrapolate the rest from there. So it, it's a big ask, and a, I'm not shocked. I guess I've never seen it, but I'm not shocked that you know the Bee Gees and Peter Frampton weren't exactly up to the task. So did you come up with like a like a rank list, Joe? Um, I did not rank my list. Okay, I well, just, that, that's fine. I just listed some things. Okay. Um, I am going to let me think. Um, I guess the one of the ones I wanted because this kind of leads into a, a comparison I wanted to make. Sure. Um, I really love in the title track the first version of it, the not the reprise or reprise or mm-hmm. whatever we're going to go with. Um, there's a there's a part where there's some uh, studio. Laughter. It kind of sounds like is this one of your moments. This is one of my moments, and I, I thought for I sure knew we were going to definitely up. wouldn't overlap on. But, but sure, um, go tell I the knew people. Knew they up. Anyway, so there's you hear um, the band starts playing. Sergeant Pepper's the military band starts playing. The horns kind of like this old timey uh, British military music. Uh, you hear the audience like laughing and applauding, and you know it's it's a very it's a very short snippet, but it conveys so much. You get this sense of like. This is a retro audience. This is a very... It kind of harkens back to a, a wholesome time where you get the idea that music is very clean mm-hmm. uh, and it's not offensive and everyone is just there kind of like smiling and applauding in the audience, uh, very vanilla. And I think that's part of what the genius of this album is because as we were talking about, you know, it, you look at the cover, like it looks very psychedelic and druggy, but it's also... There's a very like a loving quality about it. Like, they're sending up kind of this older generation of, like, British music hall and, like, military marching bands, but it's not in, like, a vicious way. Like, there's an album, really the only concept album that came out before this is Frank Zappa's Freak Out. Um, And that is a concept album that it is pretty vicious and bitter. And, like, (laughs) when he parodies something, he means it in a mean way. The Beatles are like some of those. Some of those fake songs are still pretty good on their own, right? Though, like some of his like kind of like girl group pastiches yes. and stuff. That, that is, there's, no, it's true. But, but that, you're right. It's, it's definitely a much snider than what the Beatles yes. are doing. There's a lot of snideness to it, and I think there's particularly because that's just McCartney's nature. Like he's an affable mm-hmm. guy who just likes different types of music. Like it's kind of it's with a wink, and it's kind of sending up this older wholesome era, but it's it's also lovingly. Um, and anyway, so that, that kind of just like that is conveyed very briefly just with this, uh, you know, a few horns playing and then snippet of audience laughter. Yeah. And the, I think the, the that's just I, so smart and so detailed. The thing that I love about the laughter is that it's, it's a visual gag where you don't get to see the visual. That's like, true. It's, it's like, oh, you, you know, you assume that, you know, that something's going on on stage that's making the, the crowd respond this way, but, you know, you never get to find out what it is. And, and that, right. that's such a crazy thing to, to put into your opening track on an album. Well, uh, that's why you have to watch the Bee Gees uh, version, <laughs> movie version of is it. Is the mystery revealed in that? Do you actually get to see uh, what the... I, I couldn't tell you. I don't right, remember. I'll, I'll have, to, have to get find that one on VHS or something and uh, yeah. investigate that. All right. So you can keep going. What, 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 else, what else you got for us? Um... The let's see what else do I got? Um, there's a few things in here. Just kind of like put a couple together. Um, I just think like so. Uh, Lovely Rita is is a great song. It's kind of one of the like lighter, goofier ones in the album. But I don't think it's lightweight. But I think it's it's a lighter song. Mm-hmm. Um, but then at the end of it, for whatever reason, we kind of uh, veer off into this like dreamy, like jazzy interlude that just kind of comes out of nowhere and just kind of sounds uh, vaguely like waking up like kind of being half awake half asleep like waking up from an afternoon nap which in a way kind of like 
uh, to me, foreshadows that segment of A Day in the Life where there's the connection between the Lennon and McCartney thing. Uh, and uh, it just kind of seems like this like half-awake, half, not a little bit there, a little ethereal connection between songs. Um, and that, you know, is kind of what you were saying earlier. It's like an interesting way to connect songs. Um, it's just something that hadn't been done in music before, too. I mean, certainly in jazz, but certainly not in rock or pop music. Uh, taking these like weird interstitials and using them to kind of like paste pop songs together. Yeah, and there's a number of kind of detours like that throughout the album where, where songs that you know they start one way and they end up somewhere completely different. And it's definitely one of the the, the, the kind of the connecting tissues of the album, and it makes it makes it a really interesting listen all the way through. Um, and before I want to toss it to you, but I'm going to do one more. Okay. Uh, there's a lyric that I particularly love. Um, I'm going to get it wrong because I didn't write it down. But <laughs> in Good Morning, Good Morning. Uh, John Lennon saying something about someone needs to know what the time is and he tells it to them and he's like glad that I'm here and it's a very like obviously like he's meaning it jokingly like basically he's like I just he's not happy that he was just you know dicking around telling someone what time it is he kind of means it with a smirk Um, but kind of and I'm, I'm probably extrapolating too much from this but in an album where it seems like McCartney is like taking over kind of creative direction of the group for the first time I almost, like, look at that, and it kind of makes me think of, like, oh, slightly okay. representative of just, like, where he is in the group at the time. Huh. Like, he's just, like, kind of there. They ask him <laughs> for something, and he, like, provides his input. But um, he's kind of, like, in this, you know, good morning, he's basically sitting at the sidelines of this entire narrative. Um, he doesn't sound bitter, but he does sound less interested. And I think that's just interesting because at this point in their career, for the first time, he's not, like, taking the lead direction. Um, anyway, so that's that's my like reading too far into this Beatles lore. Yeah, no, it's interesting to to, to read about just how unhappy it seems like the entire band was, except for maybe Paul during yes. the making of this album. You know, it was, it was such an achievement, and obviously, you know, they, they put so much time, I think, and, and money too. Like, I think it, it cost something like thirty times the amount that Please Please Me cost to record. So, yeah. some, some absurd number for the time, and obviously, you know, it was worth it. But, uh, but yeah, I, I guess this was sort of. The beginning of uh, you know fractious times in the Beatles, and uh, yes. they were they were not going to be long for this world afterwards. Uh, all right, well, yeah, th- those those were good choices, and I, I have the, the same uh, one from the opening Sgt. Pepper's you did. I also had one from the reprise. Actually, it's not. It, it starts at the end of Good Morning, Good Morning. So it's one of my mm-hmm. favorite transitions. Is that there's this. Uh, like I think like a clucking rooster that, that kind of sees and yes. I, I love all of the animal sounds in that song Big fan fantastic of animal, animal sounds, sounds. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think like a winking reference to, to pet sounds yeah, by the Beach Boys definitely. which they were, they, were, they were really inspired by at the time uh, and like the, the, the last like like just, just yeah. smash cut to like the opening guitar riff of, of the, the reprise to Sgt. Pepper right. and that yeah. awesome drum intro that the, the Beastie Boys sampled for, for uh, the Sounds of Science uh, and that, that's just one of my favorite moments on the album. I mean, the, the song is yeah. not doesn't doesn't really do much from there, but it, it's just it's, such a dynamite transition, right? No, for like taking for redoing a song, like it's totally vital. Like mm-hmm. you're right, I think it's like that drumming is so. Um, I don't. It, yeah, it just it's you know vaguely jazzy and mm-hmm. like I, I you know I'm not saying it like tips to hip hop's birth or something, <laughs> but like it totally makes sense uh, in the yeah, context. It was a drum break, basically. It's like, a great yeah, drum break. Yeah. yeah, it's very funky. And this was, you know, nineteen sixty seven. This was before you know, funk barely existed at this yeah. point. Certainly, so. certainly not in British rock. Not a lot of good drum certainly breaks. Certainly not on, in, you know, in British King's rock. Albums or, yeah. Uh, Herman's Hermits or whatever. Right. Uh so yeah that, that's that's one of my favorites. I also really like uh my probably my favorite lyric on the album uh is from She's Leaving Home, mm-hmm. which is both like 
a fairly silly song and also like kind of a strangely poignant song at times. Uh, this very like over dramatic kind of weeping ballad with a, you know no drum track and a whole lot of strings. But there's the the part in the second verse where uh, her parents like just, you know discover that she has left home and uh, they, they say uh, you know, how could she treat us so so thoughtlessly? How could she do this to me? Mm-hmm. And it's it's like it's, it's like a very nice uh, like kind of encapsulation of a lot of parent. Uh, daughter relationships where you know the the parents always frame everything as being about them and they don't understand what the kid is going through and they don't even bother to try and it's it's yeah. it's, it's it's a surprisingly resonant moment I think and I, I know uh, like my girlfriend's taken like particular meaning in that line before like she she's she's like said like that that really reminded her of her relationship with her parents and like for such like a, an occasionally campy album to kind of hit on on really like profound moments like that. It's, it's it's something that I think the album doesn't necessarily get enough credit for. Yeah, and, and it, it certainly, like, historically, I think takes a, a big resonance, too, because this was a time for kind of the first time... I mean, basically, you know, the, the whole idea, quote-unquote, of the American teenager really started in the 50s. It wasn't... Pre-50s, mm-hmm. there wasn't... The economy just didn't support uh, a class, a kind of, like, leisure class. Uh, you know, like, us people in their late teens and early 20s couldn't really were they had to just join the workforce right away like starting in the 50s and moving into the 60s people were able to maybe you know like follow their arrow and find themselves mm-hmm. which allowed there to be essentially the hippie movement like a movement of people who left the home and didn't immediately get jobs and kind of went around and tried to find their true selves um and that's you know and this song it doesn't make it clear that she is a hippie or isn't a hippie right. but but that speaks to kind of like someone leaving home to find themselves and it's it's certainly not a song you could imagine being written in the 1940s like it just that just there was not that concern sure. before this so I, I think in that sense it speaks to its times in a way that we kind of don't realize now and definitely like the happiest ending that song has ever that any song's ever had that that ends with somebody interviewing for a job at like a car company yeah <laughs> whatever the motor trade is i couldn't even tell you but uh I'm not quite but sure she, she, she's she's happy to be there she's happy to be applying so uh and my, my my number one, you know, we, we don't really rank these, but uh, probably my, my favorite moment on the album comes from A Day in the Life, uh, which is the last song on the album, probably the song that kind of is endured as the most, you know, iconic song from the album, I guess. Yeah. Uh, and it has, like, a number of just unbelievable moments uh, from, from the opening where it kind of slowly bleeds in and quickly becomes really, really grand and epic. And then the, the last note is probably the, you know, the most famous yeah. last note and pop history with it's, you know, it's a kind of a, like, I think it's like a 40 second fade out on just this one mm-hmm. full orchestra note yeah. uh, and obviously as you mentioned earlier there, that the, there's kind of these two discrete sections where uh, you know John sings the first verse uh, and I think the second verse too uh, but it kind of cuts unexpectedly. There's this kind of like like woozy fade out part where where the, the strings uh, give way to Paul doing a, doing sort of like a jaunty mm-hmm. uh, episodic thing about just you know waking up and going to work. Uh, and my favorite part is the last line in Paul's part where he says somebody spoke and I went into a dream, mm-hmm. and then it immediately dissolves back to John's part. Yeah, uh, and like that to me is like the inven- the invention of like shoegaze and dream pop <laughs> and any sort yeah. of like ethereal music genre where. It's this very kind of abstract moment, uh, and this, this incredibly unexpected transition, and like I feel like that 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 phrase could even be like the title of a My Bloody Valentine song, or and, yeah, you know, it, it's it, a it's a great line, and it also like just sets up that weird like sort of memento ish thing uh, where it's like, wait, the song started out with John, but <laughs> if, if, at least we're trying to follow this linearly, like, right. but that part is a dream, so it's like the song started with a dream, and then we woke up, and now we're going back into the dream, like it's. 
if you're into the sort of like smoking up and like really hammering in all these <laughs> lyrics, like it's you know it's a mind get to trip. The core of them, yeah. And and I should say that the, those Paul lyrics, like although they're they're, they're kind of less they're less weighty and, and less like grandiose than than what John's doing, like. They they really like do a good job of encapsulating a, a day in the life, uh, yeah. uh, in a, in a very succinct and very Paul sort of way, mm-hmm. uh, and, and which makes it all the more shocking when the song like suddenly flips unexpectedly. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that, that's that's probably my favorite moment. Uh, but a whole whole bunch to choose from there. A whole bunch we we didn't get to talk about. A whole bunch we, we could have talked about uh, for another half hour. Or so yeah, for sure. I and mean, the only other thing I was going to mention, which I just consider an interesting historical curiosity. Um, a lot of, and this is the first time that uh, the a Beatles album was released, same track sequencing in the U.S. and U.K. Good call. Um, but even weirder, I mean, than that is that the so, and I didn't realize this until so my my parents have a vinyl collection. As I got older, I put Sgt. Pepper's on and was listening to it, and it didn't have the studio chatter at the very end. You know, there's the final note, and then the piano chord, and then there's right. uh, like 15 seconds of chatter where. Uh, John is saying never could see any other way and Paul saying I just can't say for some reason not every US version but a lot of the US versions they decided to cut that out I guess thinking it was like too strange or something because like wasn't it originally it was was supposed to be like the run out groove on the vinyl so that like it it would just kind of play continuously until you actually took the needle off right so it's kind of obviously it's kind of hard to translate that to CD Uh, so I guess you either kind of do it yeah you kind of try to approximate it and then cut off because you can't do it forever or, or yeah. you just decide that you know the the, the the joke only really worked on vinyl and it doesn't necessarily. No, no, uh... I'm saying my parents' uh, vinyl, oh, the really? U.S. Okay. vinyl from the '60s, the U.S. version. A lot of them didn't have that for some okay. reason, uh, and this is just an odd, weird decision. It just kind of in- indicates that the, there was this time where, um, you know, the record industry right now. I think it's so global, and mm-hmm. back then it was really a lot more uh, specific for you know God knows what reasons on like Rubber Soul. The U.S. versions, without the Beatles' approvals, they would be like, oh, I don't know, we don't like this horn, we're going to take it out. <laughs> like, there's just strange changes yeah, uh, that lead, were made back then. It leads to a lot of, like, tricky conversations when, when, you, when you're trying to debate the best Beatles albums and people are talking about two diff- two completely different albums, right. both called Rubber Soul or both called yeah. uh, Revolver or whatever. Uh yeah, that, that, you know, that, that is a good point. It's, it's, it does sort of, I guess, mark the end of an era for, for the Beatles and... and and, and especially because they they'd stopped playing live around that time, mm-hmm. and you know, they they had, they had decided okay this is going to be our focus we're going to be an albums band and like this is going to be the performance from now on and so yeah it makes sense that this would be the first time that they would kind of you know they, they would they would put their foot down about making sure that the albums were consistent across the board except for this one exception right but I do all I do always enjoy that last part I don't know it feels like a it feels like a song like a day in the life should have some kind of unexpected coda to right. it. Right. Yeah. No, I totally agree. Yeah. And it kind of undercuts the seriousness of it. I mean, I love a day in the sure. life. It might be my favorite Beatles song, mm-hmm. but um, taking this very weighty existential song and then ending it just with this kind of like odd joke feels like kind of perfect and encapsulates like their sense of humor. Yeah. Yes. Humor with the U. <laughs> Definitely got to include the U. Uh, well, th- thank you so much, Joe Lynch. Uh, Thanks for having me. First ever multi-time guest on Coming Around Again. Uh, maybe we can have you on another six months to talk about Magical Mystery Tour. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, my God. I have so much to say about that one. Yeah. Mm-hmm.